Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory to Him forever. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. This is Father Michael O'Loughlin. I am here today at the Anaheim Catechetical Congress without my lovely co-host, Father Nathan Goebel. Um, unfortunately, we're having our companions, the priestly fraternity that we belong to in Denver, is having their board meeting this weekend. Um, so we, uh, he had to stay back, but I have a bishop that told me to come, so I, uh, this trumps that for me. But they're all figuring out saving the world through the companions, and I'll be here saving the world through the podcast if, if possible. Uh, so I've been, uh, I'm going to be finding other co-hosts, other people to talk to that have interesting Catholic stuff going on in their life. Uh, so first we have, uh, this is Josh Mangles. I have my notes here actually, Josh, so I, I, all the things I was going to introduce you with. Um, so Josh is a convert from, where am I, where am I? All right, Josh is a convert from the Assemblies of God Church. You grew up Protestant. You were a pastor in the Assemblies of God Church. That's right. And I'm going to let you tell your story in a second about how that conversion happened. Sure. Um, so where's your wife? She is. There we go. Yeah. So she's right behind. So us. Josh's wife is standing right behind her, making sure he does he does things right. And I was I was laughing earlier because we were talking about all the ways that spouses, especially wives, give their husbands signals that they've either gone too right. far with a joke or that 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 conversation stays right. at home. Please don't let that continue. Right. Um, so do you, wife or <laughs> Josh? <laughs> Do you, you, go ahead and tell the story that you told me earlier about when you were a pastor and you'd preach and she would sit in the front row. Well, when I was pastoring, she always sat in the front row. And she had her way of signaling me that I'd gone too far, too long, or too low. <laughs> Can you with, share that signal with us by chance? Um, it's more of a look. She's probably <laughs> not going to make it for you right here. But it has to do with a scowl and a slight shaking of the head. That you can only Aww. see uh, just, just about a half an inch each way. That the husband knows. Yeah, yeah, that I'll be hearing about it. That I might end up hearing about it after this. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what this reminds me of is obviously I'm celibate, but um, when I was first ordained, I told my family for my first homily, I said, please pray for me. Like, I'm, I'm a nervous wreck. It's my first homily. And so I stand up and I start preaching, and I look out, and my sister, who's 12 years younger than me, is like, like, praying out loud for me throughout my entire homily. And I, I, I stopped. I wanted to get, I want to make sure I wasn't getting offended by it. Like she started praying louder when I was like messing up, you know, and stuff. But it was beautiful. It's good to have the support of a wife when you're preaching. Well, support or, or active correction. <laughs> Live correction. Right. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Especially if she's not doing it publicly, right? You're preaching and she's just looking at you from the congregation. Well, there's always that moment where I pause and try to interpret if I've done well or done wrong. <laughs> and, it, and so there's, you know, there's that weird delay. So people well, begin to pick up on that and they have pity on me. Yeah. So it works in my favor either way. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I, I, I'm a preacher similar to the podcast where there's no script. So I will write a rough outline of my homily. I'll prepare well, but it'll be a rough outline. And then I really do kind of change where I'm going or how I'm speaking, depending on the, the impressions I'm getting from the congregation. Right. And I know that I know a lot of preachers do that. I have a deacon that, that just reads off of it. He's great. He's very dynamic and passionate, but he just reads off a script. I just can't do that. That's not my personality. But it, I do find that since I preach three times on Sunday with three different liturgies, I do find that... The, the one that I felt better about or that I felt even got the point across better was when the congregation was more active. More active, right. Yeah. 
Well, I, I always got highlights after the fact, and Teresa would, my, that's my wife, she would say, so do you want to know how you did today <laughs> or tomorrow? Exactly. Wait till I'm feeling better about this. I like that. that that's, that's wise. I like that, Teresa. Yeah. All right. So um, let, I, I'd love, Josh, for you just to tell your story. Um, I found out about you from Father Bob Rankin, your pastor, who was just bragging about this conversion right. into his parish that was so good for those of us in the church to sure. see. So if you don't mind just telling your story. It's encouraging. Well, it's a long story. And I think when people hear about folks coming into the Catholic Church from a Protestant background, uh, they want to hear that, that one pivotal moment or what was that one moment of conversion. But really, I think uh, coming to the church and coming to our Lord in his church is, is a lifetime. And, uh, and the Protestant experience is part of that. And I really appreciate those converts who highlight that. But I actually had a great experience in the Protestant church growing up uh, really from a Pentecostal background, uh, what we would say Pentecostal in the Methodist tradition. Um, I, had, I have great experiences and great uh, memories, youth camps, camp meetings, uh, Bible studies, wonderful people, and uh, people who really took an interest in me as a young man. And I grew up loving church and uh, loving, loving the Bible and loving all those things. So I think coming into the Catholic Church is really a lifetime experience for me, just being drawn to our Lord and His Church. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what... What do you find, and again, I, I want to make sure you, t- you tell this story yeah, as, sure. as much as would be Absolutely. helpful to, to listeners, but what, what did you find was similar between your experience of prayer in the Assemblies of God tradition and in now in the Byzantine Catholic tradition? Um, I think there's, well, the obvious things are in the Byzantine uh, tradition and specifically in the Divine Liturgy, we're involved and, and we're singing and we're praying out loud, and there's a lot of things that are done demonstratively uh, by the by the by the parishioners by the faithful and of course from the Pentecostal background uh, we were all, we were very involved we were demonstrative with our our prayer with uh, our physical with our physical body also our posture and so I think the posture of prayer is, is the, the greatest similarity with with kneeling uh, in the product in the Pentecostal background we would kneel and pray we would raise our hands and sing and and, and there'd be times times for that and we see a lot of parallels in the divine liturgy. That, that, that is, I had never thought of that before. And that, that, that was kind of why I was asking the question. It was something okay. like that. But I know many people that are converts from the more evangelical, Pentecostal, Protestant background who, who convert into the Byzantine Catholic Church. And, and they've always said that they, they feel the spirit moving in our uh, liturgy in a way that is very similar. But I never thought of the physical, like the physical actions using our bodies in prayer, which is very Byzantine, but also, of course, very Pentecostal. Well, actually, and I don't know if all of our listeners know about this, but in the Byzantine uh, tradition, we have specific postures of prayer during Lent, during the pre-sanctified liturgies. And, I, and that was sort of the pinnacle of that connection for me, where I saw how the postures are so powerful. And in the Pentecostal uh, uh, act, uh, tradition, that's definitely uh, a focus, yeah. is, is your physical posture during singing and prayer. So, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Pentecostal tradition, you would have that the motions be very individual. Oh, sure. And, and a lot of it's up to uh, the different chur- churches and so-called churches and communities and the way they develop. Yeah, so. okay. All right, go ahead and tell your story, if you would, from the beginning, whatever way you think would be inspiring to our listeners. Yeah, so um, growing up in the church, I had great memories, and again, uh, really involved with evangelism as a teenager and in youth ministry, and uh, really felt this desire to enter 
Protestant vocational ministry and become a pastor, maybe a youth pastor. And, and I was traveling with evangelists and studying under pastors and had, had it in my mind I would go to Bible school and become a pastor and serve in the church. And I met my wife in high school, and she had the same desires. She had a, uh, a, a very uh, radical conversion to Christianity from a uh, non-Christian background. And so we both felt this drive for evangelism, and in high school, we were really involved with that with our youth group and, and began preaching and teaching in churches, even in high school. And um, we both sat, had the same vision and the same desire to serve, serve our Lord. And, and where serve was this? God. What city? This was in South Seattle. South Seattle, okay. Yeah. So as, as soon as we got out of high school, we went into Bible college and uh, were also preaching at the time in various churches. And we even had a TV show for a while there in South Seattle that broadcasted all of Seattle. But we were having a great time traveling uh, some and uh, worked, worked in different positions in the church as a youth pastor, uh, inner city pastor. We've, we've done a church plant. We've worked as associate pastors in large churches and uh, just had a great time. Met a lot of great people. Um, but as things progressed and as my studies continued and we always work on studying and reading and looking into um, getting better at what we do, better communicators and I began, I began having some problems with the idea of saved by grace alone. And I began having some problems with the idea and, the, and how we assert scripture only. And how um, really there was this idea that if we could get people to answer more altar calls possibly and more decisions, quote unquote, for Christ, that we were being more effective. But in my travels and especially working with young people and working in the inner city, I saw that... Uh, there was a big component missing, and that was uh, continuity. So if I would preach in one church one weekend and another church the next weekend and my home church the next weekend, uh, there was major doctrinal differences. And there was differences in what one church said it meant to be saved and what another church. And I thought this really created a lot of confusion. And, um, and so I began to have those reservations earlier on in my ministry career. But I sort of pushed those things aside, and there would be times where I would study the, study the Reformation and study the Reformers, and, uh, but then when I would get to a point of frustration, I would brush it aside and just kind of pour myself back into evangelism or just working on, working on whatever ministry project I was working on. So there was always kind of this itch within me um, that there's something wrong, if you will, the math in our soteriology and how it, what it means to be saved. Um, were you, in a sense, escaping contemplation through action? Absolutely. Um, and thank God for our, our priests who are able to articulate things that way. But that is exactly what I mean. And, and so, um, and we would discuss things. Um, and in moments of despair like that, again, yeah, pouring ourselves into some type of evangelism activity, brushing aside the reservations we had on the saved by grace alone or saved by faith alone. Um, those were some of the things. Those weren't enough to uh, compel me to look at the Catholic Church. Um, there was many times flipping through the channels, I would see the Coming Home Network or, and, and hear of these pastors who had some of the similar frustrations I had and would come into the Catholic Church. But for me, I always thought of them as uh, maybe also uh, looking for an escapism. And uh, I, didn't, I did not give uh, uh, room for the Catholic Church to be uh, the answer to some of those um, problems I saw doctrinally 
in, uh, in the faith alone message. So anyway, as we move along, uh, I became a, uh, I became a uh, lead pastor, a senior pastor. Uh, again, it was my second time being a senior pastor. And in the Assemblies of God at that time, I was part of a group of pastors within the Assemblies who uh, were very concerned about um, tradition within the Assemblies of God and Pentecostalism and kind of in the Methodist strain. And we, they had, we had conferences throughout the year just for us to kind of get rallied and tr- try to share ideas about how we can really begin to win the culture war. Uh, it's it's not always uh, folks from that background. It's not always about what side of the of the arguments within the church they're on, but it's also more people who identify we're losing the culture war. What is wrong with what we're doing? Yeah. Okay, so I think sometimes we look at it as this civil war of conservatism and liberalism, but I think there's folks on both sides who are saying, "Hey, it looks like we're losing the culture war. What can we do to fix it?" And we need those dialogues. And I was part of those pastoral. Uh, committees and dialogues. And I remember I went to a conference in Arkansas, and I'm, I'm getting to kind of the point of past uh, this this conference in Arkansas. And I had to drive from uh, uh, Van Buren, Arkansas, down into the Texas Panhandle and back up to Oklahoma to drop off a couple of other uh, evangelists. And so I had about three hours on the road, and somebody sent me a, a link to a video from a Catholic apostolate who was teaching on mortal sins. And this was a teaching for Catholics by, by a Catholic. And so I had a three-hour drive, and I thought I would listen to what this person was saying about mortal sins. Did they want you to criticize it or to... You know, I'm sorry, Father. To this day, I don't remember who sent me the link <laughs> okay. or why they sent it to me. That's beautiful. Yeah. Someday... Uh, the Holy Spirit did it. Yeah. It was the Holy Spirit. So, so as I'm listening to this teaching on mortal sins and the church fathers, I listened to this person in multiple videos three hours of listening about mortal sins. And as a, as a Pentecostal pastor, we don't have mortal, we didn't have any accepted teaching on what mortal sins are, or what they aren't, uh, on venial sins, on confession. And the church fathers was, was something that uh, we stayed away from. We stayed away from studying the church fathers because that could lead you to Catholicism. And uh, <laughs> that would be taboo. Don't go there, you right. know. So I'm listening about mortal sins and and it was the clarity, as he cited the teachings of the church fathers, there was a tone of clarity to it, and it was like a drink of cold water on a hot day. So when I got to the airport, I, my wife called me, and she said, how was the conference? And uh, I said, the conference was terrible. It was just more of the same. It's just more marketing. We must spend more money on marketing. That's the answer. And, and, but, but I have to tell you something. I've been listening to this Catholic teaching for two and a half hours on uh, the church fathers and the definition of mortal sin. And I got to tell you, I love the clarity in it. And my wife said, okay, you're tired. (laughs) What did somebody do to my husband and who are you? You're tired. You had a rough conference. Come home. And so, and, uh, and that was sort of the beginning of when I gave the church the benefit of the doubt. And I came home and, and uh, read more on the church fathers a little bit. And I thought maybe I'm, Maybe I am just fatigued. Maybe I have ministry fatigue. Maybe I'm getting burnt out. But Father, I must tell you, I, I loved being a pastor. I wasn't burnt out. I didn't feel burnt out. I loved the people. I've always loved pastoring. So I, I looked, as I looked at myself, I thought, I'm not burnt out. Uh, so I began looking online. Are there any other crazy Pentecostals who've become <laughs> Catholic? 
has anybody else followed this thread? Yeah, and I found line, a lot. Yeah. I found a few. I found uh, Tim Staples, and I found uh, Scott Hahn, who wasn't a Pentecostal, but I, I found literally dozens and dozens of stories. And um, over the course of, 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 of uh, those months, um, I ordered Jimmy Aiken's book, uh, uh, The Fathers Know Best. Okay. And um, I thought, maybe I'm just reading Catholic propaganda. <laughs> If right. there is such a thing. Why not? <laughs> and so then I ordered um, some collegiate volumes and um, on the Church Fathers. Still hadn't been in a Catholic church in my life. And then I began to uh, just listen to all those well-known apostolates available online and a lot of Fulton Sheen. And, um, and then so at our Assemblies of God Church, I keep getting more and more compliments on my Sunday sermons. And I thought, little do they know they're hearing regurgitated. <laughs> it's getting clearer and clearer for <laughs> yeah. us, yeah. And so I began uh, teaching a series on Wednesday nights on the early church and the church fathers as I was studying St. Justin Martyr and, and uh, Polycarp and Ignatius and all, and all these early church fathers. I even did a series on the Didache. And so as I'm unpacking these things for myself, I'm unpacking them to the congregation. And the congregation began doing their own reading wow. as well. And some of them have their own unique journeys that, off, that was an offshoot of that. Yeah. So, so when you, when, when I see co- converts from anything, anywhere from atheism to, to high church Protestant, um, th- there's usually either the heart or the head, one or the other, both eventually coming in, but one comes in first. So am I hearing you correctly? It was, you're obviously, you had both, both your heart and your head were very Christian. Both your heart and your head were at the service of your people, but it was the head that started leading the heart into a place maybe that the heart never expected to go. That's absolutely right. Um, my heart at that time was really not in, in converting. My head was enjoying the teachings of the church, and, and I absolutely loved it with my head. Yeah. But with my heart, if you would have asked me that, and my wife asked me, my wife was very concerned. She said, you're, you're, all you listen to is Catholics, all you're reading is Catholic books, this is, has one destination. Are you sure <laughs> this is what we're going to do? Right. I, I don't want, she, she was very vocal. I'm not going to become Catholic. Yeah. And I was very firm with her. Neither am I. It's right. never going to happen. That's we're just hilarious. rediscovering truths. Um, and, and of course, she says, well, what are you going to do when you start reading about Mary? And my wife would challenge me. I said, I'm not reading about Mary. I'm reading what the church fathers wrote. Right. So you don't have to worry. <laughs> I, I'll never be one of those, you know. And, uh, but of course, it's inevitable. So she would come home and, and I would, whenever she would walk in the room, I would slam my laptop shut. Of course, what are you watching? <laughs> uh, what are you hiding from your wife? More Fulton Sheen, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. And uh, so, so, th- so it, it, it really all these things, Father, were not enough to compel me to convert. Uh, the authority, the teaching on authority, of course, uh, we know that's been co-opted by many Protestant movements. So that wasn't enough to compel me. But as I began to get a a stronger understanding of the Eucharist and our Lord, Mm. that I couldn't look away from. Mm. And as the months progressed, uh, my discussion with my wife and I was always about the Eucharist. And as a Pentecostal I'd answered hundreds, maybe, maybe a thousand altar calls in my life. 
coming forward to to get a closer relationship with Jesus. Yeah, can you define altar call for the Catholic listeners? Well, the Catholics listening in the Pentecostal tradition and many evangelical traditions, the altar call is the culmination of, of a really good service where hearts have been moved, a good presentation has been made about a Jesus or something to do with God, and and they'll give a, a quote-unquote altar call where if, if the message has touched you today, you know, come down front and and make your make your better commitment toward the Lord today, or or come and uh, you know seal your your greater uh, your your uh, greater depth in Christ today, or come and come forward and we'll pray together. And it's just sort of a culmination of a really good uh, feeling or or your heartfelt response to Jesus. So I like one of the things the the differences I would see between. Um, you know, apostolic Christianity, Catholicism, or an orthodoxy, and my experience in most Protestants is that the, the Protestants always struggle to find the communal aspect. Like, we're individuals. I have individual faith. I accept Jesus Christ as first Lord and Savior, but there's, there's a need for the community. That's what I see this as fulfilling. Like, I want my private faith to be made public and therefore, in a sense, embraced by the community, and so the whole community grows closer to Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a big reason why that model works. Okay. It, and and there's all there's all sorts of other tangents off that in uh, in the Protestant world. I mean, as Protestant pastor of a medium-sized church, you have to be great at bringing community together, doing right. community events, providing opportunity for relationship. And that's really something I think, you know, as Catholics, we should always be looking for ways to work on that. Because those aren't necessarily direct theological issues. Those are things we should just be doing as Christians. They're human. They're yeah. human issues. They're Christian issues. Learning to build better relationship with my brother and sister. And that's evangelism. It's through relationship hmm. with your... I, that's how I, I, I have conviction about that. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, the altar call was absolutely a place that you see your brothers and sisters in Christ crying and praying or laughing or, or just having prayer together and... That's really something you see yourselves responding to Christ together, yeah. yeah there's something beautiful about that. The wheels are turning in my head about how, obviously within especially Byzantine Catholicism, we have these ancient, ancient traditions that we, we do every Sunday. How do you incorporate the, what I might you might call communal testimony? Or I think a lot of times in our churches, people pray next to somebody for years and years and years. They've never heard their story. They, they never know why is this person here? What, what is this person doing praying in our church and, and what moved them? Somehow incorporating that communal faith idea into testimonies, some sort of witness. Um, anyway, you've got the wheels turning in my head about how we can incorporate that and make it part of our authentic tradition. Yeah, and there's, an, there's another component too is giving folks, I think it's really important to give folks an opportunity to physically respond. Because yeah. again, we have that posture, how important your physical posture is. And I think Catholics can't be, uh, I, I, with, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I don't think Catholics should be so fearful of being Protestant by kind of giving folks an opportunity to physically respond. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it happens all the time. If you've ever been to a, uh, a, uh, a vote, you say yay or nay. I, I'm for this or I'm against it. it it's, it's, uh, it's a powerful thing to say, yes, I'm physically responding. I would like to ascend to that ideal. Yeah. Public um, act of faith. Yeah. Public act of faith. Uh, and, but uh, so, so when we saw the uh, the Eucharist, and we saw uh, folks coming to receive the Eucharist, we saw that as the pinnacle of all altar calls. And now, if, I don't know if every Catholic knows this, 
But when you come forward to receive the Eucharist, that is an altar. That's a that's a, what I would call an altar call. I like it. Amen. And you say Amen. In in the in the Mass, at least you say in the Roman Mass, you say Amen. Yeah. That's your assent of saying yes, I believe. Yeah. And in the Byzantine rite, we have we we beautifully say, Lord, I believe and confess. Yeah. And we sing Amen. <laughs> we sing Amen, but we say I believe, and I yeah. I'm ascending my faith, and I'm publicly saying. And I think we do it so many times as Catholics. It it, it would be very easy to take for granted how special it is and what we are doing as a community. And I think it's so easy to, to forget that. We need to highlight it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, so n- next step is Byzantine oh, Catholic? How did that work? Oh, well, well, for me, I was, I was very happy learning all these uh, ancient truths and learning about the history of the church. And our church was actually growing at the time. Okay. My board at the time was very happy with the preaching. Everybody was really, really happy. I had young adults in the church reading the church fathers. Nobody was complaining about it. Everybody right. was very happy. I was traveling and preaching. And, uh, but this thing kept coming up for my wife and I. What about the Eucharist? Also, marriage was important. The church is teaching on marriage, which is a hot-button issue for Catholics right now. But for us, we were reading the sayings of the fathers regarding the issue. So it was, okay, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with the sacramentology of what you're reading? You can't look away. And so I remember one time my wife and I were on the freeway. We would talk about this endlessly. We actually shook hands once. It it overtook so much of our life. We shook hands. We're not going to talk about anything Catholic for two weeks. <laughs> we took all our books and put them in the trunk of a car. Okay. Said nobody says anything Catholic for two weeks. Okay. That lasted two days. <laughs> we just wanted our Lord in the Eucharist. It was all we talked about. And I remember we were on the freeway, and she looked at me, and she said, why don't we just go to a, a noon mass, get in line, and receive Jesus. Wow. They let anybody receive nowadays. And this is what my wife said. (laughs) I'm sorry, but at the time we were Protestants. And she said, according to these news articles, they just let anybody receive Catholic or Protestant. And that was our way of thinking at the time. Okay. And so I said, well, the fact that, do you believe it's Jesus? And she said, I do believe it's Jesus. And I said, so do I. But that means we cannot receive. Right. That means we need to go to RCIA. We need to talk to a priest. And she says, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to go to confession. I said, well, then there you go. We're not ready to receive yeah. Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. We if, call it communion for a reason because it, it affects very real communion. Yeah. So there I am giving a Protestant communion once a month. And it was, it was like it, it was the, one of the worst experiences of my life of coming to this pivotal point where I really believed Jesus is present in every tabernacle in every Catholic church, okay. and yet I'm a Protestant pastor giving communion, and I'm, I'm thinking of these scriptures that say as teachers will be under a heavier judgment. And it was a very difficult time. And uh, so I said, I have to find a priest. I'm so afraid to talk to a priest. Wow. And I think Catholics listening, you have Protestant, your work around Protestants who are deadly afraid of actually talking to a Catholic priest. I was very afraid, but how do I meet a Catholic priest? Where do you meet Catholics? <laughs> right, that's a very good question. I, I have my ideas on that. I think there should be Catholic priests in every bar and coffee shop throughout the city, <laughs> but anyway, it doesn't well, work that easily. I wasn't in any bars at that time, okay. and I, I didn't know where to find Catholics, so I'd say, I, I know where we'll find Catholics at a pro-life rally. Okay. So I googled a pro-life rally, and I attended the pro-life rally, and they prayed the rosary, and I had brought my children, and they were praying the rosary, and my kids looked at me like, where did you bring us to? <laughs> and so I'm at this pro-life rally. The Catholics were praying the rosary, and I met the organizer of the rally, and I, 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 he, he gave me his phone number. I called him later that week, and I, I said, I am a pastor of an Assemblies of God church. 
I need you to refer me to a priest with a very, very strong backbone. I'm, I'm going to need to become Catholic. <laughs> I it's, like that. It's going to be a mess. Yeah. And I need a priest who can carry two congregations. Wow. And um, he referred me to Father Bob Rankin. Okay. And I was so nervous for our first meeting. I, I literally brought 50 questions. Okay. And um, I didn't get to any of them in our first okay. meeting. All we did was talk about Jesus and we talked about uh, our love for the Lord, mm. and we started a beautiful friendship from our very first lunch together. He put the most, the best face on the Catholic Church, mm. and uh, I, d- I still haven't got to my questions. <laughs> Here we are, a couple years later, I still haven't been able to go through okay. my questions. I have them in my phone. That's hilarious. So someday I'll be able to run through them with yeah. him, but uh, we end up talking about everything else. So that began the journey uh, in earnest, and I remember the, the first uh, divine liturgy he invited me to. He did not invite me to a liturgy. I, I came to meet him thinking he's going to invite me to divine liturgy. He said, yeah. Protestants, right. you invite people to church. Right. But Father Rankin didn't invite me to church. Huh. He invited me to more lunches. Okay. And so this was a paradigm change for me. And I would go home and I would tell, Therese would say, did he invite you to church? I said, no, I haven't even been to his church. She goes, well, when are we going to go to a, a mass or a liturgy? <laughs> said, I don't know. I guess I'll wait for him to invite us. Yeah. And it was like this desire was building and building inside of us for the Eucharist, for the sacraments. Spirit and, was at work. Yeah. Oh, man, we were so hungry for Jesus and the sacrament. And Father Rankin wouldn't even let the conversation go there. <laughs> and it just built the desire more and more in me. And so we fi- he finally uh, went to a, a divine liturgy on the feast day of St. George. Okay. I'll never forget. Because you asked about the heart and the mind. Mm-hmm. And that first divine liturgy, first time being in a, a Catholic liturgy, I had toured so many missions, but being in a liturgy, uh, that was where my heart, it was, I, I had resolved that we're going to come into the church to receive Jesus in the sacrament. Our emotions might not be there the way they were in the Pentecostal church. Okay. So I had conditioned myself, this is a mental decision, this is a logical decision. But my emotions were overwhelmed in that first liturgy. And there was an icon there of Our Lady of Sorrows with the daggers. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what it was about that icon, but I felt like she was watching me. And of course, I had been reading so much about Our Blessed Mother and the Theotokos. And uh, it was just very emotionally moving, that first liturgy. I couldn't stop crying. And when Father raised the host, Mm -hmm. I thought of that scripture where our Lord says, if I be lifted up, Mm -hmm. I'll draw all men to myself. And I thought he is drawing me in a way that is so profound. And uh, it was nothing I expected because all I knew of the Catholic Church is what I'd seen on TV and movies. So especially in the Byzantine Rite, everything was completely foreign. But yet... There was this demonstrative element that sort of put me at ease. Yeah. And uh, the bowing and, and uh, all the motions. Uh, it was a very, very beautiful experience. And I knew there was no going back. Yeah. One of the things I love about the experience of being in a church during liturgy is that when I was in seminary, we learned that the church structure, the art, the architecture, and the singing, and the people, it should be like you're back in Eden. 
In other words, you're in paradise, you're in the Garden of Eden, you're walking with God. It's a very laid-back kind of presence. So so weeping through the whole thing just makes sense to me, you know, especially for someone who has not had the experience of being in Eden and now is so close to our Lord and just rests, rests there, you know. Well, I could, the hardest thing for me was going back to our Protestant church mm. because I was still pastoring. Okay. And what do I do? And I have to tell you, it was really strange. The smell of the incense stayed with me for, for days. Okay. And I remember texting Father Rankin and told him, I, all I can rem- I just smell incense. And I just, okay. I want to be back in the liturgy. Yeah. And he said, well, come next week. And so now he begins, you know, kind of inviting me and opening the door. And so my wife and I began attending liturgy once a week. Uh, it's kind of secretly. Okay. <laughs> I'm still pastoring. <laughs> right. So there's this awkward transition time. And I don't know if there's going to be any ministers listening, but, you know, the curiosity kills the cat, right? So, but those liturgies, and then we brought our children after yeah. a few times. And... Um, I just wanted to be in that divine liturgy. And you talked about it being a Garden of Eden. I, I felt, people say, how did you feel the first time? I felt at home. And I, and I saw the icons and I saw the imagery. And I, I was, now everybody's going to have a different reaction, but I felt like this is where I belonged my whole life. Wow. This is actually home. Yeah. And I remember Father gave me a tour afterwards and it was almost like I could tell he was concerned if I did feel out of place. Now, there might be people listening, especially Protestants, you might feel out of place. And that's, that's not the end of the world, and that's not a bad thing. But for me, I didn't feel out of place. I felt completely at home. Mm. And I felt, uh, of course, I was curious about everything in there. But the liturgy and, and the music and the icons, I felt like I had come back home. That's one of the things I love, because what I'm hearing in your voice is, is like there was rest, Sabbath rest even. The, the experience of God saying there was labor and here you can find rest. So, so that's why we have it on Sunday. The day Christ rose, we have Sabbath rest. And, and the way I talk about it as a vocations director, when you're discerning a vocation, there will always be surface anxiety, always. There will be kids crying. Sure. There will be smelly people, people sure. dressed weird. But deep down is there rest where Christ dwells. The part yes. of the heart where Christ dwells, does that, do you rest there in this experience of liturgy? Well, and also maybe for those Bible students that might be listening, for me, there's, there's a thousand different doctrines in the Protestant world on everything you could imagine. So my background up to that point had been reading documents about the Reformation. I had been consuming church councils, and we don't have time to go on and all. I had been reading the church councils, and as I read the councils and the church fathers, I'm discovering these guys have already wrestled with all the issues that right. Protestants are fighting tooth and nail over. Yeah. And so when you talk about the sense of rest, for me, I, I'm looking at these documents and these teachings, and I had mentally found a place of rest. Like, I don't need to figure out every teaching. I don't need to reinvent theology. We have all these doctors of the church, all these church fathers who have spent their lifetimes There's 2,000 years of church history, a magisterium. And so when you talk about the sense of rest, I had a mental rest already anticipated when I came into liturgy. Wow. Yeah, that that, that is, I can completely imagine that. When I was made my promise of celibacy, Uh like put my hand on the gospel, promised my bishop I'd be celibate for the rest of my life, 
as much as that should have been a moment of anxiety, same thing getting married, I imagine. It's just, there was such a sense of rest. Like, now I know my vocation. Yes. I know that anything that would might pull me away from this is only a temptation. Yes. And, but the, the sense of, of existential resting in the heart of Christ was incredible, and I can imagine it was a similar. Yes, especially uh, the, the, that first few liturgies, seeing the host lifted and seeing, hearing the prayers prayed over the over what was formerly bread and wine and yeah. during consecration, it was just it was as a Christian and as a pro, as a I loved Jesus and the, it, the the feeling for me, if I could put it in a phrase, was this was everything my heart ever wanted. Yeah, this Amen. was everything my mind ever wanted, Amen. and we were always reaching toward it. and And I will say this to other people listening: you know, Protestants are great at writing songs, right? And all the modern music, a lot of even Catholics use the Protestant music. But it was it was so um, sacramental. We used to sing so many songs about the blood of Jesus, huh. so many songs about uh, being washed in the blood or the power in the blood of Jesus. And here I am in a liturgy with the actual blood of Jesus, right. the actual body of, of our Lord. Um, and the community aspect that you mentioned, you know, whether Catholics know it or not, we were all there together eating from the same table. Yeah. There wasn't Amen. five options in the front. We're eating from one table of blessing. And uh, I, I, I hope Catholics rediscover the communal aspect of that Amen. and the power in that. So I'm going to jump ahead. It yeah. wasn't only you and your family that came in. What, what, what happened when you actually came into the church? You brought people that you were leading with you, right? Well, there's a funny aspect to it, too. There's a lot of young adults in our church, in our former church, that had been, that had taken that teaching on the church fathers and began reading uh, the Desert Fathers. And each one of them kind of has their own story uh, that was inspired off, off these events. And I heard through the grapevine that they were secretly visiting a Catholic church. Huh. <laughs> and they, they were planning this big thing, and they didn't want me to find out about it as wow. their pastor. And, it was, it, and it, was, uh, it was that time of year where we met with the board, and we announced that we would be resigning the church so that wow. we could enter the RCIA program and uh, into the catechumenate. And we gathered those who were closest to us in the church and made a, an announcement to them and just kind of said, if you'd like to know anything about it, we're going to be here for you. Um, if not, we hope you will remain our friend. Wow. And um, so we resigned the church sort of within, they gave me one more Sunday to give a goodbye sermon wow. that was uh, heavily uh, guarded by the Assemblies of God. And okay. they sent out representatives to make sure I didn't say anything Catholic in that <laughs> goodbye sermon, which I didn't. Wow. Uh, but it was a hard goodbye. Yeah, I bet. I loved pastoring. Yeah. I absolutely loved the people. I loved proclaiming uh, the, the, the scriptures. And, uh, and uh, so that was a hard goodbye. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I, I hope one day that someone comes back on our podcast and says they were a pastor and their heart was moved by a podcast we did a year ago with Josh Mangles. Um, so I, I'll, I'll ask you this. Um, is there something from your experience of conversion, a way that you can challenge the Catholics who are listening to say, this is how this is how to make the church a soft landing pad for those who want to convert an experience you had or just something you can challenge us to do that you're already doing maybe or that you want to do to help the spirit work in the conversion of hearts to the faith yeah so i would say in a word be sacramental okay uh it was not for me i mean uh again everybody's different 
for me, it was that distinct sacramentology. Really, uh, we see it so well displayed in the Eastern uh, liturgies. But be sacramental. They're, the sacraments are powerful. Yeah. They're full of power. And, and um, your Protestant friends or uh, those who uh, find themselves Protestant functionally, uh, remind them about Jesus being present physically. Yeah. It's a challenging doctrine to a Protestant. It is really the most challenging doctrine mm. of the Catholic Church. Even more than what you think. I think Catholics think that Mary bothered... Because this is what you hear all the, all the time from Protestants. Mary worship, po- the Pope, right. um, you know, idol worship. You hear all those same four or five things over and over. But I, I, I think we bring it back to Jesus present in the Blessed Sacrament. What if it's true? Right. What if Jesus really meant what he said in John 6? What if he really meant what he said at the Last Supper? What if the Apostle Paul really meant what he said in 1 Corinthians 11? What if all these mountain of scriptures, Protestant, are what they mean they are, and Jesus truly is our sustenance and our nourishment? Doesn't that change everything? Yeah. Because everything flows from that. Yeah. So be sacramental, and and uh, and you'll and uh, I think you'll you'll see that there's a hunger there. That you know we don't always know what we're hungry for. We don't always know what we're sick with when we go to the doctor. Right. So the Protestant who thinks they want to talk about the Pope all the time or Mary, they don't know what they need. They think they need you to have every answer about Mary. You don't. Right. You need to tell them your experience with Jesus and be testimonial. I think the Catholics should, should have a, a, a prepared, uh, you know, how do you feel? How do you prepare to receive Jesus? Right. What do you, what do you pray after you receive Jesus? Those are moving stories for a Protestant. It is very true that most Catholics are afraid of evangelization because they're afraid of getting questions that they can't answer. And That's often fair. what I say, it is fair, and we always do need to learn more and more about it, but the, somebody who approaches you or you approach them, the Holy Spirit's working. The Holy Spirit is in control of the whole situation. And oftentimes, I think, especially young people nowadays, the best thing you can say to someone when they have a question is, I don't know. That's but it true. shows humility. It, it shows searching. It shows seeking. So sometimes trying to find the right answer or quoting other people is not the best thing in the moment. Sometimes they just want to hear from a Catholic who they think is arrogant and elitist. They want to hear, I don't know. Let me help you find that answer, and it'll benefit my life as well. Yeah, and I, I think that Catholics, um, I've also shared this with many parents, um, you know, teach your children to be Catholic, but they, they almost need to have an element of, of an apologist. Yeah. If our young people, Christian or Protestant, or Catholic or Protestant, are going to survive this culture, they're going to have to be a little bit of an apologist. Yeah. And the Catholic youth that is not well catechized, I can tell you from my Protestant experience, they were right pickings. Yeah. Because they've been taught to respect God and respect Jesus and respect authority in the Catholic Church. But if you don't teach them the sacramentology and the liturgical life, as a Protestant, I'm telling you, those were the ones we went for. Yeah. So Catholic parents, uh, I'm telling you, be sacramental. You know, Keep your kids close to Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament and teach them. And if you don't know, look it up. Yeah, it's okay not to know, but it's not okay to continue to not to know. If you don't know, go look it up. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Josh Mangles, thank you. Um, thank you for your story. We're honored to have you in the church. You converts are some of the most zealous, educated people we know, and you build up the church in a very real way. So thank you for your witness. Thank, thank you, you for coming on here. Thank um, you for having me. Do you have any shout-outs? Anybody you want to give a shout-out to that you might be referencing this podcast to? We do that at the end of the podcast every time. I think Father Rankin was a, was a... Without Father Rankin, I don't know how this would have happened. It would have been a hot mess. I know that for sure, <laughs> at the least. Right. Um, I'd also like to thank church militant Michael Voris, who, without his bold proclamation regarding mortal sin, regarding the church fathers, I would probably also not be here today. He was the first Catholic I emailed. I emailed him before I spoke to anybody else, before I went to anything else, and he emailed me back three words, pray the rosary. Wow. To which I threw my phone at the couch. <laughs> this Catholic doesn't understand. I don't want to pray the rosary. But, uh, of course, we pray the rosary all the time. But uh, also uh, uh, Father Liam in Tucson, uh, Deacon Eugene. Uh, there was many people, Catholic Answers, uh, the Coming Home Network. Uh, there was many, many Catholics. The whole body of the church was okay. part of our conversion. And I'm so grateful for the Catholic Church and the great people that are part of it. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, uh, thank you for listening live. Those of you that are here, thanks for helping out, whoever did. Um, you want to send us an email, catholicstuffpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, iTunes, Instagram, Twitter, all those things. Please keep in touch. Thank you again, Josh. This thank you, Father. Treat. Thank you for Very having us. You. All right. God bless y'all. Love you.